Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Universities seem to be making the news daily, from varsity blues scandal and campus culture wars to fights over creating new universities out of whole cloth. There's a lot to cover. And so far this year is only adding to the stockpile. In the past couple of months, two major lawsuits promised to rock American higher education. One, dealing with the 568 cartel, is focused on potentially corrupt financial aid and price-fixing practices. And another, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University, touches on an even more touchy topic, affirmative action. Here to discuss both of these cases with us is Josh Dunn and Eric Hoover. Josh Dunn is a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, where he focuses on the intersection of education and American law. And Eric Hoover is a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education, where he writes about the challenges of getting to and through college. Josh, Eric, welcome to the report card. Happy to be here. Great to be with you. All right. So we're going to discuss two different cases today. And let's, let's get at them separately. And we'll try and wrap up by tying some loose ends together. Eric, you've covered the lawsuit targeting the uh, 568 cartel, which is just a a great name for any lawsuit. This suit deals with price fixing and financial aid and includes some pretty high profile institutions. We're talking about Brown, University of Chicago, Dartmouth, Duke, Georgetown, and the list goes on and on. Can you give us a rundown briefly on what exactly this lawsuit is about? Sure, I will do my best. Uh, So 16 private colleges, you're right, all big name institutions, um, uh, allegedly are participating uh, in what uh, has been called a price fixing cartel, uh, right? That sounds, uh, that sounds sinister. Um, Specifically, these institutions uh, have been accused uh, in a lawsuit of violating uh, federal antitrust laws, how you might ask. Uh, by allegedly collaborating to um, uh, determine admitted students' financial aid awards, uh, the lawsuit says, and that was filed in a federal court several weeks ago um, by lawyers representing five former students who attended uh, some of the named uh, colleges. Um, so there's some, there's some backstory here, and there's something that even many higher ed insiders haven't heard of, um, and that's something called... Um, the 568 group or the 568's president's group. Um, and basically uh, the lawsuit concerns um, shared methodology, right? Shared methods that um, uh, some of these private institutions use to calculate um, their financial aid equations, uh, the equations they use to determine um, applicants' financial needs. And federal law allows institutions to use this common set of standards for assessing families' ability to pay, but only if those institutions bring in all of their admitted students, their entire class that is on a what's called a need-blind basis. Uh, In other words, uh, um, need-blind meaning uh, we admit you or deny you without um, considering your financial circumstances. Um, as an applicant. So what the plaintiffs are contending is that these 16 private colleges aren't really need blind, or at least not uh, need blind in any and all cases, because uh, they do, uh, in some instances, consider a student's financial circumstance, like 
say, when they admit a super wealthy donor's kid um, just because they're a super wealthy donor's kid. Um, so the colleges, the lawsuit contends, work together in a way that um, uh, they say is designed to reduce or eliminate financial aid as a locus of competition. And that, in fact, has artificially inflated the net price of attendance for students receiving financial aid. Okay, so let's break this down into chunks. Yeah. Uh, because, boy, this case is complicated. First of all, the coolest thing about the case is the 568 cartel, or if you're more sympathetic, the 568 president's group, that's fine. Where's the name come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the, uh, the group is named for uh, Section uh, 568, right? Um, it's, it's, it's so nerdy, um, but uh, th this is the name the group has given itself. Um, it's, it's, it's called that uh, because uh, Section 568 of a federal law that um, permits these need-blind institutions to kind of get together to share information about something that would normally seem like uh, top secret proprietary information, right? To share information about their own institutional aid formulas um, uh, this, the statute allows them to do that, but it does bar them from discussing aid awarded to like you, me, any other individual applicant. Um, and there's history behind that. Uh, decades ago you had, if you can imagine a tweetier time, uh, officials from, uh, dozens and dozens of highly selective private colleges met regularly to discuss these things, to discuss their shared common financial aid, uh, policies. Uh, the umbrella term for this group was called the overlap group, um, and it was created to ensure, at least in theory, that applicants admitted to more than one of these participating private, highly selective colleges received similar or roughly similar uh, financial aid awards, again, uh, in theory, allowing them, freeing them up to choose colleges based on factors other than the uh, some total cost uh, of that um, of each institution. Um, the collaboration was meant, um, its stated purpose anyway, was uh, to prevent um, you know, these outrageous bidding wars for students that uh, we know um, are alive and well in higher education today. But that group found itself in hot water many, many years ago, back in the early 90s, um, when the Justice Department filed a civil antitrust lawsuit against the entire Ivy League, uh, all eight institutions, and MIT, so big name institutions, alleging that officials at those colleges were violating, you guessed it, federal antitrust laws by kind of conspiring to uh, restrain price competition. So the question going back decades is, wait, um, uh, is this a conspiracy to eliminate price competition? Or is it some kind of good-hearted um, plan for uh, giving students the power to select colleges based on something other than uh, concerns about college A costing a lot more than college B? Um, or is it some combination of both? Uh, so it, it's, it's the 568 group is kind of just uh, this, this thing, again, many people in higher ed don't even know about. Um, and here it's finding itself in the news again, uh, decades after uh, the root of the story began. So now, as far as I understand it, there's 16 institutions in this 568 group. Nine of them were breaking the rule. And that rule is they weren't technically need blind in these financial aid packages. So for us who are not financial aid nerds, 
What does need blind mean? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, the technical definition is uh, if, if say, um, you know, Hoover University uh, claims to the public that it is need blind. Um, it is making a pledge or a promise that we make um, all admissions decisions to admit you, to put you on the wait list, to deny, to deny you um, based on your record alone and not on your um, ability to pay, right? Uh, and the, the flip side would be if, if a college says that it's need aware, it's, it's telling the public that it's making at least some decisions um, uh, based in part on you know, an applicant's or a family's ability to uh, afford the institution to pay the full freight, that their, their financial status, be they wealthy or middle class or not so um, wealthy at all, uh, that that, um, if you're need aware, you're, you might be, at least for some students, factoring in uh, a family's finances into your admissions decision. Need blind um, is, is at least on, on the surface, meaning that uh, the institution is not taking that into consideration at all. And as far as I understand it, nine of this group, this broader group that were sharing information on methodology were breaking this need blind. This is the accusation. And thus the entire group is problematic. So everybody's in the same bucket of hot water. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure of that. I know that the loss who did, um, you know, uh, kind of single out uh, these nine institutions um, you know, among other things, uh, they singled them out for um, just doing away, allegedly doing away with their need blind pledge when it came down to admitting, you know, handfuls of students off of the wait list. Um, allegedly, uh, those nine institutions, at least in some cases, were um, making those wait list decisions uh, in part based on a student's uh, financial uh, situation. Um, I, I don't know if that would, would apply to the entire membership of the 568 group or what some people are calling the 568 cartel. Yeah, it, it's much more colorful if we call them a cartel. <laughs> Josh, what are some of the broader considerations that play into this, you know, price fixing, cartel, uh, need blind, whatever you, however you want to characterize the case? Yeah, well, as Eric said, many people weren't that familiar uh, with, with with this. I was one of those people until some of these articles started coming out on it. Uh, and so obviously it affects, uh, affects a very small slice of, of higher education. Most institutions are not going to, you know, this doesn't affect their admissions policies. They're going to be dragged into this. Uh, but I, I mean, in general, what I would say is given what's been alleged and you know, after looking at the a accusations and some of the evidence that already, uh, has already been presented, I think the discovery process is going to be really interesting. <laughs> like if I were a, if I were a, a, one of these institutions, um, I might be a little bit worried about that. Uh, so I think that that's probably the biggest. To, to me, that's the biggest implication is that you're going to have this long drawn out uh, uh, litigation where they're going to be deposing admissions officers from from these institutions. My guess is they'll try to pull in all the schools as well just to see if they're participating as well. Because right now they're just saying, "Well, we only we think we only have evidence for what these not the, these nine institutions." This could end up being very embarrassing. <laughs> That's what I would say. Um, and Eric, yeah. I mean, how big are the reverberations that could yeah. come from this lawsuit? Is this just high profile? You know, we got a great name and, and we do have something that we can go after under the law. Or are there going to be ripples that, that affects higher ed more broadly? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess first, let me just echo something Josh said. I think he uh, is absolutely right um, that that the uh, the. Perhaps the most likely impact here 
is embarrassment. Um, and, and I say that um, uh, to mean that, um, or I guess I should add to that, um, embarrassment uh, can be costly in its own way. Um, and, and, and embarrassment is, is a pretty significant thing in a world that um, is increasingly skeptical of how um, super selective colleges operate, right? Um, as far as many people are concerned, Operation Varsity Blues scandal happened like 10 minutes ago. And um, to Josh's point, um, a, a senior level admissions uh, official at one of the uh, named institutions in this um, lawsuit uh, told me, you know, not for publication, but that um, he, he's not concerned about his institution um, losing uh, this, uh, this case, right, or, or suffering financially from this lawsuit. But he said, nonetheless, uh, it, it's keeping me up at night in so many words, because he said uh, that he, he perceives this to be a legal dirty bomb, right, that, that when it explodes, um, will shake free, um, you know, some information about the ins and outs of all kinds of um, enrollment management uh, tactics. So these would be um, highly strategic ways that colleges operate to maximize their revenue um, uh, in, through the admissions process uh, to make um, perhaps controversial decisions at every turn about who to admit here and who to deny there. Um, so that even if this lawsuit doesn't really go anywhere um, and the plaintiffs don't win, I think the, the quick read I got from people weeks ago in higher ed was that this lawsuit might not really um, uh, prevail um, like in court, uh, but that um, to Josh's point that, that there could be a lot that, that comes out that sees the light of day that gets written about by a thousand publications um, through discovery um, or any, you know, any, anything related to this inquiry. Um, so I think that is at, at this point, that is the level of concern um, that several people I've talked to have about it. Um, you know, I do think I do think this lawsuit um, focuses on a, a relatively narrow band of institutions. Um, but as we've seen with Varsity Blues and in so many other cases, um, you know, even a small handful of big name private fame, world famous colleges, um, you know, uh, that find themselves in hot water or under scrutiny. Um, it has a huge impact on public perception of the entire swath of colleges, selective or otherwise, whether that's fair or not. I think that's how it plays um, in, uh, in, the, in the media generally. And so I think the impact could be uh, relatively large, even if the lawsuit doesn't really go anywhere or deliver the kind of victory that it's seeking. So you don't have to lose in court to lose on this case. Right. I mean, there, I think, you know, Harvard, uh, Harvard took several um, blows to the chin, um, you know, prior uh, as, as the uh, lawsuit um, was was getting underway. Um, and then at several stops along the way between 2014 um, and when the trial began in 2018, um, as um, huge volumes of information that Harvard would have preferred to forever keep private uh, became public. Um, uh, so that every journalist, commentator, blogger, or just everyday citizen could read about. Eric, is that on the 568 case or the Students for Fair Admissions case? No, no, I'm just, I, I am talking, I am referring to that. I'm, I'm just saying that uh, though, though Harvard has twice prevailed uh, in court, right. um, it has lost in, I think, the court of public opinion when some um, information about its practices and policies have come to light. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you. Well, you brought it up, so let's shift there to the affirmative action case. This is Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. 
Josh, can you give me the, the thumbnail on what this case is about and why listeners should care about it? Sure. So it was filed back in 2014, and there's a companion case uh, out of North Carolina, uh, Students for Fair Elections versus the University of uh, North Carolina. Uh, the, the Harvard case was a little ahead of the North Carolina case. And then so last summer, actually, the Supreme Court asked the uh, Solicitor General's office if the government wanted to reconsider its position. That was clearly a delaying tactic. I think they wanted to delay so that they could get the North Carolina case um, kind of on the same path as, as, as the Harvard case. But the, the crux of the Harvard case was that the accusation that Harvard was, was violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act by discriminating based on race and its admissions policies, and in particular was discriminating against Asians, uh, that Asians would have to have dramatically higher SAT scores to get in. Uh, then some of the information that Eric was talking about, I think, was uh, they, they rate each applicant based on a kind of personality uh, uh, score and the things like likability and leadership and courage. And it turned out that Asian applicants got the lowest scores on all of these. Um, and so, you know, Harvard won in, in the lower court. Uh, but again, you know, going to the, going to the Supreme Court, the question is, do the equal protection principles, uh, do they, uh, of the 14th Amendment, apply via Title VI of, of the Civil Rights Act? Because that's the that that that's the argument of students for uh, for fair admissions. Uh, the North Carolina case is a pure constitutional case, or much largely focused on the Fourteenth Amendment's equal protection clause. And there, the allegation is that affirmative action um, violates the equal protection clause, and therefore, Grutter versus Bollinger, this case from two thousand and three involving the University of Michigan's Law School, which is the first time the this, a majority of the Supreme Court actually had that held that diversity was a compelling public interest. Uh, for admissions in, in higher education. This had long been the practice in higher education, going back to, to the Bakke decision from the late 70s. But what people realized was only one person in that Bakke decision, there's a 4-4 split, and you had this um, kind of deciding, uh, decisive opinion by Lewis Powell can be a compelling government interest as long as you meet these other criteria, such as it being uh, narrowly tailored. So it gets to the Supreme Court in 2003. The Supreme Court says, yes, it can be a compelling government interest. Students uh, for fair admissions are saying, look, Grutter should just be overturned. The court was wrong. Um, and they give a lot, a, lot of, a lot of reasons for this. And again, the it, discovery process and that was a little bit embarrassing, too. I mean, some of the some of the things, the very crude ways they would talk about the race of particular applicants by the admissions officers at North Carolina. I, I, again, Sarah said, you know, they never wanted that to, to become but to become public. Um, so it's going to be, yeah, I, I think what it indicates, of course, the Supreme Court granting certiorari, uh, agreeing to review them means that, um, there's an appetite probably by majority of the justices to overturn, overturn Grutter. The question I think is going to be whether or not the Supreme Court is going to go as far to say, as far as say, to say that, uh, really private institutions receiving federal funds, uh, also have to follow these same principles. And that's what I've always been skeptical about. I was actually surprised that Harvard's uh, brief to the Supreme Court really didn't um, make a, an argument on, on that uh, on that count. I, I would expect that they probably would um, by the time it, it, they, the Supreme Court hears it. It should be sometime this fall. So anyway, that's the kind of that's the that, that's the brief take. More than likely, Greta's going to be overturned. Affirmative action, at least for public universities, to my guess, is, is going to be declared unconstitutional. Then, in my mind, the big question is what's going to happen happen with private institutions in Title VI. So these are really interesting questions. Let's back up to a couple of the specifics on the students for fair admissions versus Harvard, which is just the Harvard portion of the case that the court will hear. We've got two things that are talked about. One is sort of broadly affirmative action. But in that case, they really focus on this Asian penalty part 
So usually when we think about affirmative action, the first racial group we think of is not Asian Americans. But in here, that's the sort of motivating factor, it seems like. What's behind this Asian advantage um, approach in the Students for Fair Admissions lawsuit? So I I think one big thing is elite institutions had a fairly ignominious history of uh, uh, of discriminating against Jews in the uh, you know, early and uh, middle uh, part of the 20th century. And so this bring it, it kind of recalls the, this sordid history uh, from the history of, of, of the I- Ivy League in particular. And so the Asians are the new Jews who, you know, you know Harvard and other uh, elite institutions explicitly try to minimize the percentage and number of Jews who are, who are admitted. And so the argument is that, well, this is really of the same piece. I mean, you just look at the quality of the Asian applicants. I mean, they're really stellar. Um, and Harvard is just kind of inventing ways to, to, to keep them out with this, with this very amorphous, um, vague, you know, personality rating. Um, and then again, at lower courts, they, they won. But I mean, if you look at the district court's decision, I mean, some of the stuff was really kind of laughable. I mean, the, the judge said things like, well, maybe they got lower scores because the you know, Asia, Asian students don't have as much access to guidance counselors in high school, <laughs> something like that. It's utterly um, specious, I think, and there's really no 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 evidence for it. But so he's trying to try you know create a way for Harvard to to uh, to, to save itself. Um, so that's so that's part of it. This is sort of history, and then this question of you know, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which says the institutions receiving federal funds can't discriminate discriminate on the basis of race. Um, and so then what does that mean? Um, can, can, uh, can institutions do this um, and still then still receive receive federal funds? Um, so I think that's at, at the core of it. And Eric, you know, you talked about how discovery can be embarrassing in these cases. And I, I would guess that at least for Harvard, there was some embarrassing uh, information that came out on differences between applications by Asian students and, and students of other races. Is that right? Um, I think, I mean, I think Harvard, uh, like, like any, like any institution that operates at that level of admissions, you know, a selectivity um, that, you know, a, a percentage of, you know, four or 5%, whatever it is, uh, that is denying um, the vast, vast majority of uh, applicants, many of whom are super qualified, would prefer for any reason to, you know, keep it, uh, it's secretive, um, closely guarded process, um, keep it that way, even if they were confident that they weren't breaking any kind of law at all. Um, just because, you know, uh, when people are behind closed doors, they they talk about their work. They make comments um, about applicants. Perhaps some of those comments might strike people as like really, um, really awful or unfair. But even even if even if the comment might might have been uh, in, in its own context innocuous, once it um, is brought into the open um, outside of the context of, um, you know, an elaborate admissions process that someone might choose to love or hate, uh, those comments can seem, um, you know, oh my gosh, look what they said about this, about this kid, right? I mean, that, that is, that is, um, that's embarrassing right there before you even get to the question of, and were they also saying um, anything untoward or perhaps um, saying something that indicated uh, that they, you know, that they were um, breaking a, a federal law, uh, that would definitely be embarrassing. So I think, um, you know, as, as for these personal ratings of uh, Asian American students, I mean, I can tell you, I, I covered the uh, part of the three-week uh, trial, um, uh, uh, students for fair admission, uh, and and Harvard, and it was like a week or more of du- uh, dueling 
um, econometric modeling, right? Uh, two, uh, two economists presenting um, uh, overwhelming evidence that Harvard did discriminate against Asian American applicants or did not discriminate against Asian American applicants. It exhausted me, it exhausted all the reporters in the room, and it seemed to have exhausted uh, the judge in this case. So I, I don't know what exactly to make of those dueling um, analyses of uh, the role that personal ratings of uh, Asian American students as a group, um, what, it, what it really amounted to. And I, I've sometimes thought that those two analyses canceled each other out for, for better or worse in this case. Yes. Well, dueling econometrics, uh, that does sound fun yeah. indeed. So yeah, right. I, I think it's a useful question to bring up. You tell me if I'm wrong. Who is Edward Bloom and what does he have to do with this case? Yeah, uh, well, great question. Edward Bloom um, is the architect of both of these um, cases. He started Students for Fair Admissions. Um, he uh, has, has been uh, plain and clear about his intentions. Um, as Josh mentioned, these uh, uh, two cases, the one against Harvard and the one against UNC Chapel Hill were filed, feels like 20 years ago, were filed back in 2014 at the same time. And his long-term strategy game plan was to, um, uh, to bring both cases kind of joined at the hip um, before the Supreme Court. And lo and behold, that is what, um, that is, what is uh, going to happen this fall, it seems like. Um, uh, and, and that these two cases will be, be considered uh, together at the same time. Um, and his hope is that this two-pronged strategy um, will prevail uh, to uh, permanently do away with race-conscious admissions, as many folks in higher ed call it, um, or affirmative action, um, as many, many folks uh, throughout the universe would call it, uh, to, to basically um, end this um, practice of considering students uh, race and ethnicity is one of many factors in admissions decisions. And I think it's fair to say that um, from there, uh, the floodgates might open uh, uh, when it comes to uh, race conscious policies um, in hiring practices and in many other contexts in American life. Um, this this could be, um, could be uh, opening the door to many other legal challenges um, to, to kind of uh, practices as we've grown up knowing them. So Josh, in 2014, the court looked a little different than it did today. The court that's bringing this lawsuit together, and I think it's, you know, sort of interesting that both the UNC and Harvard lawsuit have been joined together to kind of take this on as a public and private question. What is the current constitution of the court, you know, what does that mean for this case? What do you, what do you read about the changing constitution and, and this case? Well, obviously, the biggest change was the departure of Justice Kennedy, who was the swing vote in Fisher versus Texas, where the court did narrowly uphold uh, a kind of race conscious or affirmative action program uh, out of this somewhat, somewhat um, unusual system of admissions for the University of Te uh, Texas system. But he, he's obviously gone now, replaced by Kavanaugh. Yeah, so Gorsuch is replaced the lead. You expect him to vote the same. Every indication we have is that Kavanaugh is not going to be as sympathetic as Justice Kennedy was to uh, arguments that uh, diversity should be a compelling government interest in admissions processes. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you, you add Barrett as well. And so it, it's it seems like there's probably six votes um, that there that are very, very suspicious of affirmative action and admissions. Um, 
certainly I think for, for a public, uh, public institution. Um, so I think that, that, you know, you, you look at that, you can do the math um, and it, uh, you, you have to think that North Carolina uh, has a pretty difficult road ahead of it uh, and, and potentially is Harvard as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think things have changed. I think perhaps when Bloom filed the lawsuit, you, you know, you couldn't foresee all of this. Uh, and perhaps what he was hoping for was just an embarrassing discovery process that might happen with the other, uh, the other case we were just, uh, just talking about. Uh, and that did happen, right? He already got some, you, you could say some moral victories, uh, just through, just through the discovery process. Uh, but obviously he wants to win at the Supreme Court and, events have uh, worked to his advantage right, since 2014. And when you think about the case, I mean, you can think of Chief Justice Roberts as trying to find sort of like half measures in here or in other cases, rather. And when it comes to this case, it seems like, uh, and correct me if I've got my precedents wrong, but Grutter is the case that is up for grabs. Is there a half loaf option that you see that's obvious? Or do you see this sort of, you know, it, it's the, the whole shebang at one go? Yeah, I don't, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't see one for North Carolina. I, I, I do think it's possible for the court to come up with some kind of minimalist approach with private institutions, because I, I think there might be some conservatives on the court who, want, who would be afraid of intruding so deeply into the uh, decisions and administrative policies of, of private institutions, because just about everyone receives money from the federal government. And so if you if you start uh, allowing federal law to reach uh, so deeply because of uh, because someone receives uh, federal money, then that means just about everyone is going to be uh, can, can end up being constrained uh, by, by federal policy. So that's why I think they might. I don't know what it looks like. Right? And that's why I was surprised that Harvard didn't try to broach something in its in its brief that could be a half measure that could appeal to to Roberts, maybe Kavanaugh, maybe a couple of the other conservatives. But I think that's their best. I think that's their best shot uh, is just to argue, well, look, this is just going to sort of deeply intrude into civil society and private institutions uh, that, you know, you as conservatives really want this. I mean, is this is is is, is this going to end up being a um, something that you're comfortable with? Uh, so. That, that's where I think there might be, uh, you know, kind of uh, half a loaf. But when it comes to the public institutions like Roberts, right, he was the one who in Parents Involved versus Community Schools in Seattle said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Um, so I think that's probably going to be his position in North Carolina. We'll just have to see with Harvard. Eric, given uh, the court, and I'm happy to hear your thoughts on the Constitution of the court, if, if you've got something to add, but you know, in this case for uh, Harvard or UNC, in your coverage, what what have you seen might be their best tack in the case that they're looking to this fall? That's a good question, and uh, and I'm no legal strategist, but I I, I mean I think uh, there you know um, both institutions are going to continue continue to strenuously argue that um, uh, 2003 uh, Gritter. Um, leaning on Baki uh, is just um, a solid bedrock of, you know, nearly a half century of precedent um, and that the uh, that these narrowly tailored policies are already very narrow. They have a limited um, they have a limited uh, kind of use um, and that the educational benefits of diversity. Right. That's the that's the only uh, that's the only uh, end that uh, that these policies can um, can be enacted to. Um, you know, to pursue um, are are 
are are the kind of bare minimum that colleges and universities need to um, assemble a diverse class that's hopefully diverse by lots of measures. Um, and that especially at the most selective, the most quote unquote elite institutions uh, that really can change the uh, um, direction of your life if you come from say an underrepresented lower income um, family, uh, that, that those these are the very institutions that need to be able to consider uh, race among other factors um, and that uh, we shouldn't upset the apple cart. That's not a good legal argument, but I mean, that'll be, I think, the in layman's terms, the tenor of, of what they argue um, that this um, that this system uh, has is imperfect, um, but it allows uh, colleges the freedom to uh, deal with the realities and deal with the um, education inequities that um, are, no, are not um, going to be fixed um, anytime soon, right? Um, many people, in fact, don't, don't think they should be fixed, um, and that and that this this policy is a way of just dealing with um, as, as best a college can with inequities everywhere. Um, but I think, uh, look, the people I've talked to uh, who um, are working general counsel's offices uh, on college campuses, as well as many admissions leaders who've been around for decades, um, I think the consensus is their the sword right is about to fall on their heads and. Uh, and it's game over. Uh, people have been predicting the end of race conscious admissions for, you know, decades, and it hasn't happened. But as Josh said, the court looks a whole lot different now uh, than it did not very long ago. And uh, I think people look at that and think 6-3 um, uh, loss uh, for Harvard and UNC. And the question just is, will it be a will it be a total loss, you know, 58 to nothing at the end of the game? Or or will it be like a will it will there be some middle step? And I think that's just hard for people to imagine what what's something short of a total defeat for supporters of race conscious admissions would look like, but maybe it is some sort of split decision like uh, Josh can imagine here. Um, but I, I think people have their fingers crossed in higher ed, but that they feel like this is this is finally the the, the end of the road, um, you know, coming probably in a decision next year. Well, give Roberts his due. He's been creative in the past, so we might see what else he can come up with. Let's ask a little bit broader, like zooming out, right? What are the ramifications for this? Because, you know, a lot of people can listen to this and they can say, well, affirmative action and price fixing, that covers the earth of college admissions and everybody going to college has to deal with these same, you know, problems in this minefield. Is that true? Does, do these issues affect all institutions? Do they affect a relatively small sort of elite set? Eric, how should we think about the breadth? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, yes, I think this is um, on the one hand, this is we're talking about a, a relatively small fraction of the vast diverse universe of higher ed and the diversity, I, I think, of of two year and four year colleges in our country um, is, is uh, that diversity is a real strength. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would say as important as these questions that the court will will weigh uh, are. Um, and this question of fairness and in, in all of these lawsuits we've talked about here um, are really important. But, um, you know, uh, in, until we figure out a way um, to uh, make college more affordable uh, for more students of any age and background, then um, I, I think we're, you know, it'd be easy to just uh, lose that all important thread and in, in, in doing, you know, uh, court watching year after year, decade after decade and predicting the end of affirmative action. Um, but I, I do think Big picture, um, you know the the mistrust of of uh, higher education of admissions that I that I do think um, emanates from the policies and practices of 
that relatively limited tier um, really does have a trickle down effect on how people um, look at all kinds of colleges, um, be they uh, famous and selective or not so famous and not selective, um, be they expensive institutions or relatively low cost ones. Um, I think all of those institutions uh, do um, do suffer uh, when the actions um, of, of, you know, those colleges, quote unquote, at the top, um, you know, fall under scrutiny as they and they often deserve to fall under scrutiny, I, I would say. Um, but the public is suspicious as hell of affirmative action policies at colleges and suspicious uh, of of higher ed um, generally. And I think anytime colleges are in the news for a hot button issue like this, um, you know, that, that that does take a toll on the entire um, sector. Um, some people would say that's just not fair. I just think that's, I think it's understandable given um, that people tend to, I think, um, view higher education as a kind of monolith, right? Um, for better or worse. Josh, how far do these ripples spread for your, you know, your average college applicant? Yeah, right. So I, like Eric, I think that from from most institutions, this isn't going to matter that much. Um, but uh, at least on these particular issues, but I can see there being broad, broader effects. One would be a continued move away from uh, requiring the SAT or ACT for admissions. I think that's the way some institutions have tried to get around the issue of well, what what counts as academic merit. Uh, so there there might be a push uh, for that. Uh, but then. I think for most institutions where a decision against UNC and Harvard might show up would be in their in, in hiring. So not with admissions in, into the student body, but just with uh, how you hire faculty, because more and more institutions, I don't know, maybe, maybe almost all of them now require some kind of uh, uh, commitment to diversity or they, they, there's uh, consistent uh, emphasis on diversity in hiring. And that might be the next front that would have a broader reach uh, with with litigation, because I, gu- I guarantee you, if if the Supreme Court rules against both Harvard and, and uh, UNC, there's going to be litigation on some of these diversity measures in, in faculty hiring um, that, that will, will come along pretty quickly. And, and quite frankly, like you're just saying there's no imaginary wall about these race based decisions and college admissions that couldn't go out to other parts of college hiring and beyond colleges, right? To, you know, just how larger, you know, civil rights legislation has effects in the, the broader workforce. Is that is that correct? Right, as Eric, yeah, as Eric mentioned, I mean, this could go, yeah, yeah, hiring practices throughout the economy, right? Yeah, so I, I think, yeah, that you can't, it's gonna be difficult to cabinet um, and just say, oh, well, this is just admissions in, in higher education and all the admissions for, uh, some more selective institutions where it really matters, at least on the margin for some cases. So l- let me wrap this up by just asking, what does this all mean uh, with, as Josh, you mentioned, you know, a lot of universities are getting rid of standardized tests and the SATs and admissions and so forth. I mean, you know, we have this instance at Harvard where they're using personality traits and so forth, which is a little harder maybe to pin down and so forth. Uh, I'm just curious, what directions do admissions head to if we take away race-based affirmative action as um, or, or race-based admissions as a intentional route to diversifying campuses, but we still want diversity on our campuses? I mean, <laughs> what routes are left to institutions that want to pursue some sort of end run around a potential block from the Supreme Court? 
Well, I think it would be to focus on some of these softer measures. <laughs> so get rid of the standardized tests, focus on things like essays, life experiences, personality scores, whatever. But again, the problem there, and I think what some people worry about is that those are actually easier to gain the wealthier you are. <laughs> um, you know, it turns out that if you you, you come from a uh, well-heeled family with lots of resources, you can afford to hire a special, you know, uh, essay coach right, uh, to, to go over your your uh, application essay and those things. So I think some people worry that that's actually going to uh, work in the opposite direction. Uh, that it'll make it easier for the uh, for the for the wealthier to to gain the system than it is under a, a system where you're where you're using something like the SAT or ACT. Yeah, I mean, look, if uh, I mean, there's obviously there's there there are there's a handful. I mean, I think there are, there are nine or ten now uh, uh, states where public institutions for years, if not many years, have um, not been able to consider an applicant's uh, race or ethnicity. Um, and I think it's some of those institutions, particularly flagship public institutions, some more so than others, um, have embraced um, uh, creativity, right? When it, I mean, uh, in, in their holistic review processes, no, they can't consider an applicant's race any longer, um, but they have to ask themselves, what are they doing? And it's not just, what are they counting? What are they counting in the admissions process? There's only so many things you can add to it, um, but they have to take a hard look at um, say two other parts of admissions, uh, recruitment and outreach to students, um, be they uh, low income or high income or black or white, um, but particularly their outreach to underrepresented students who attend largely underrepresented minority high schools. Um, what is meaningful outreach? Um, if you wanna increase that um, and get more applicants uh, from those schools, what does meaningful outreach and communication look like, particularly with students who don't have um, school counselors, right? Or school counselors who can give them a lot of help. And then also they're going to have to take a look at their um, their financial aid and scholarship policies, right? Um, I just think that you know we can add essays and interviews as many colleges have done. Um, they're just not going to carry the weight, um, and by and large, they do not carry the immense weight that a student's academic background does, particularly the um, the grades they are in high school and the courses that they've uh, taken or even been um, you know had the opportunity to take. That is the North Star in admissions, it will continue to be with or without SAT or ACT scores. But I do think um, colleges that find themselves unable to consider race and ethnicity have to ask themselves, how do we get more creative? Um, what is a more meaningful, nuanced, holistic review? Lots of people don't like the term holistic review, don't like what, they, what it means or what they think it means. Um, but I think holistic review is going to get um, even more um, nuanced as some people might see it, or even more ridiculously complex as critics might see it. Well, we'll have to see what they do. Of course, as long as they keep their admissions need blind, they could all compare notes under the 568 title of some unknown uh, <laughs> federal legislation that I can't recall. But maybe that'll set up for the next 568 cartel lawsuit. And we'll talk about that when it comes again. Uh, Eric, uh, Josh, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about these two high profile cases. Thank you. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Josh Dunn and Eric Hoover. We'll include links to both of the court cases discussed in today's episode in the show notes. I want to thank our producer, Wesley Armstrong, who makes this podcast possible. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to The Report Card to get episodes when they're fresh and to make sure you never miss one. While you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other folks will find the show. 
We want to get your comments, questions, and topic suggestions for the report card. So send them to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus. 